Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, president and editor-in-chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. I want to welcome two of my colleagues who are our guests this week. Uh, Anna Gowell, who is, of course, the managing editor at DevX. Hey, Anna. Hi, Raj. Great to be here. Good to hear your voice. And uh, a first time on this podcast, Rob Merrick, who is our UK correspondent. Hi, Rob. Hello, Rob. It's great to join you. Great to great to hear your voice too, Rob. And I, I want to dive in. I think we'll probably spend a lot of the time today talking about the Munich Security Conference, which just wrapped up and which you attended, Rob, along with our colleague, Margaret Richardson. You know, I have never attended it before. Uh, I mean, just give people a sense of what it's like to be at the Munich Security Conference. What's the vibe like there? It's, it's a fascinating uh, event. And to have it been about six years ago, it was particularly fascinating to see just how much it has changed, just how much bigger it is and just how many different types of people are there and how much it's moved away from being a, having a focus on, on hard security. It was an event born out of the, the Cold War and how it's moved into a whole different arena of discussing issues such as uh, migration and climate change and particularly food insecurity and a much wider definition of, uh, of security than it would have had even a few years ago. And uh, perhaps the second fascinating thing is just where it is held. You get used to going to conferences in in modern centers with sort of lavish reception and conference rooms. Uh, uh, but this is um, in, a, in a traditional old hotel tucked away in a quiet Munich street. Uh, uh, I mean, some people might think, to be honest, it's, uh, it's outdated there and perhaps it needs to move somewhere else as it becomes bigger. But I'm sure uh, uh, tradition is a hard thing to break and, and they're trying to carry on holding it in, in this beautiful hotel for as long as they can. And this is like hundreds of people or thousands of people. Can you give us a sense of the scale of it? I, I'm picturing you know, military men with uh, a chest full of pins walking around. Is that is that right? Or is this more people in business suits? Give us a sense of that, that vibe that's there. Uh, I think there were some military people. There were probably more people in business suits, but certainly thousands of people. Uh, the event organizers would, would say that it's uh, uh, second only to, to the COP gatherings uh, in terms of its size and importance in, in this sort of space and would certainly liken it to to Davos, so it spread from one hotel over uh, into a second hotel and a, and a completely different press uh, center because not everybody can fit into the original venue. So yes, many, many thousands of people, uh, many hundreds of events, as well as the, the main events going on on the stage where uh, a few presidents and prime ministers and defense secretaries will speak. I think there were 180 side events and uh, the organizers were very keen to have, uh, invite uh, voices from across the planet. So there were very many Global South voices, uh, many campaign groups, uh, many people with uh, prestigious positions in their own countries, uh, you know, not just uh, what would traditionally be the, the major countries from the West dominating the conference. There's a pretty dramatic picture in the special edition newsletter that we published. Um, you, you want to say a word about this, uh, Anna, since this is a newsletter you work quite a bit on? I know you weren't there in person, but this picture is pretty arresting. Yeah, are we talking about the confrontation over Gaza? Oh, actually, I'm talking, well, I'd love to hear about that one, too. I'm talking about the vehicle that was meant for, for like a mission uh, yes. to Mars or something. Yeah, it's called the AHEAD, um, all acronym, it's an acronym for Autonomous Something, Something, Something. I'm sure Rob can get the specifics I, I think on it's it. Autonomous Humanitarian Emergency Aid Device. 
Not because I know that, but I happen to be looking at it right now. <laughs> okay, good. I, I don't feel as bad for forgetting it then. Um, yeah, no, it's this kind of not monstrosity, monster truck, if you will. Uh, wheels could probably crush a car, as, as Rob describes it in his report. And essentially, it's you know a way for the World Food Program to try and get into these conflict zones autonomously um, using you know technology to not put their workers in danger. Um, I believe Rob could speak to it more specifically. It's already been tried, um, but obviously the goal is really to get this uh, push into the last mile, the most perilous part of an aid journey. And I think, you know, we're hoping, they're hoping to possibly see that in Sudan, for instance. And, you know, it's it's an interesting, um, I, I don't want to say it's a novelty, but I had never heard of this truly done before. Of course, you've had drones and things like that to get aid and, and medical supplies in to, to certain places. But in terms of conflict zones, I feel like this is kind of a new invention almost and seeing the truck apparently you know rob and our chief of staff meg who was also on the ground saw this it was uh rob you can probably speak to it it was quite the visual from what i saw uh, yes it absolutely was and uh i, I think I, I wrote that uh sometimes it's difficult to, to get excited about a new office building opening uh, even though the organization itself might be excited so it was the perfect ways to uh, uh, get along this extraordinary vehicle and uh, and have a, another reason for us to attend and i watched uh, uh, several german drivers uh, inching nervously around it as they wondered what they were confronted with uh, on their normal uh, morning passage uh, and, and yes the, the key is that uh, they want to make it autonomous it's a vehicle that's been used has been driven already by uh, by the World Food Programme in, in a couple of spots, but uh, uh, the, the aim is, is to uh, remove the risk to its own staff by, by having it as, as a self-drive thing. Um, I, I, I think they said they thought they were still two or three years away from being able to achieve that, and uh, I know they also need uh, quite significant investment, you know, many tens of millions of dollars they suspect to be able to achieve that. So uh, I think, unfortunately, it, 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 we won't see it being... Um, uh, used autonomously uh, for a little while yet. You, you mentioned this kind of being used to promote a building opening, and maybe you can tell us more about that. If I'm right, this is the World Food Program's Innovation Accelerator, right? Which I think has been around for some time, but they they were opening a, an office or something. Is that what this was used to promote? Yes, I haven't seen their previous facility, so I don't know how much of an upgrade uh, uh, the new one is. It's certainly in a fantastic location, very central, and they all seem very, very happy with it. And I think uh, it's going to be a much uh, easier working environment for them. And as you say, this is what the uh, WFP calls its uh, centre in Munich, the Innovation Accelerator, because it's all about finding and developing and financing uh, new innovations that will make the work of um, of itself and, and other development organizations uh, uh, so much easier. Uh, and the AHEAD autonomous vehicle is just one example of that. Yeah, I thought in some ways it was an interesting juxtaposition to see this in the special edition newsletter because it comes right after a section where uh, Kitty Vanderheiden, who is, you know, always great to to kind of stir up the pot a little bit. She's the, the deputy executive director at UNICEF. It talks about that this community and especially donors need to embrace more of a risk-taking appetite. So here she is saying, hey, we've got to take a lot more risks. And then here's an example of WFP uh, trying to maybe really minimize risk to staff. I mean, you can see it being a logical thing when you want to protect staff. But there's also a big debate in our community about humanitarian aid work 
actually being done by real people who can leave the compound walls, even in dangerous situations and actually engage with the local community. Um, so I thought that was an interesting juxtaposition to see. Uh, and, and Kitty, you know, she makes a point in her piece that you've got to work with local actors because you need to have access. And so again, here's a question, like, do, do you really want to invest in the, in the off-road vehicle that can go anywhere autonomously, or could you instead work with local actors who can get there on their own because they live in that community? Not that it's one or the other. I just thought it was an interesting juxtaposition in the piece, Anna. Yeah, it certainly kind of gets to something uh, in diplomacy as well, this kind of bunker mentality and getting out there in the world. But at the same time, I think especially what's maybe not the word poignant is the best word, but but important for WFP if we look at what is happening in Gaza. You know, they have had uh, the UN in general and a lot of its aid, uh, agencies, including WFP, they've had workers, aid workers killed in Gaza. It's actually the largest amount of UN workers killed in a conflict since World War II. So you can see the desire there to increase the, you know, safety of, of aid workers because we're seeing it firsthand in Gaza. And I think that that, you know, certainly uh, it was front of mind in terms of, of this invention and this direction that we seem to be going in. Yeah, like I would think in the Gaza case, this truck wouldn't help either, right? Because, you know, the issue is there's a lot of trucks backed up <laughs> trying to get in. It's There's a security question and the IDF is not letting them through quickly. They're, they're searching them and the humanitarian community is trying to get more trucks in more quickly. So it's not clear that just because it's autonomous and off-road capable, et cetera, that it would actually help bring in what's needed. And, you know, maybe this is more of a, you know, more of a, a gimmick than, than something real. It'd be interesting to, to do some further reporting on it and see. I mean, I think about a conflict like in Sudan, you know, ultimately, if you have an active war going on, the question is, will the warring parties respect this WFP vehicle? Would they respect it any more than another humanitarian vehicle that's that, that has a, a human driver, or will they end up shooting at this too? So, yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. Speaking of Sudan, that was a topic that came up a lot, it sounds like, from your reporting, Rob, at, at MSC. Absolutely. Uh, you could sense uh, on so many occasions the frustration uh, of people who are maybe from Sudan or familiar with it or work there. But of course, the world's attention is focused so much on the horror of Gaza and the ongoing agony of Ukraine. And many people would argue that the conflict in Sudan is even more brutal. Uh, and there's certainly be going on longer, is perhaps even or as far away from a resolution. And yet the world has, has, seems to have turned its back. So I think that was a, a major theme of several of the events at the conference. Right. One of, one of the speakers was saying that Sudan is in a stage five famine. And, you know, even at that, even though they're in that state, 70% of food is being lost after harvest, which I thought was a really interesting point and probably made worse by the conflict itself. You know, presumably it's hard for farmers to, um, to be able to, to store the food and transport the food when you have an active conflict going on. But it was interesting to see an issue of, of food waste and food systems brought up in the context of a conflict like Sudan. Yes, and this was brought up by uh, somebody who's, a, who's a, quite a well-known um, climate activist, a youth activist from Sudan. I hope I'm going to say her name correctly, Nisreen Alzayam. And uh, she's enormously impressive. Uh, she's suffered, her family has suffered, is suffering personally because of what's going on in the country. And uh, after the event, I, I spoke with her and she showed me uh, photos of the street where her 
house is or was, and she tried to get back to it recently and was unable to do so. She can't be certain that her house is destroyed because the photo doesn't quite show the house. It just shows the wrecked street, but her suspicion that is that it is uh, wrecked, destroyed, that she can't go back there. And I asked her where she now lives, and she essentially said nowhere. She's moving around from country to country as she can, and uh, you know, she herself is, is an exile from the conflict. Wow, amazing. Um, go ahead, Anna. No, I was just going to say, I think the, the sheer fact that you had a panel uh, on Sudan and, and you know, the, the, the conflict there just shows the evolution of the conference, conference itself, you know, uh, echoing Rob's point of that, you know, development, uh, as we wrote in, in our special edition, maybe he's not taking center stage, but is really making a much more pronounced uh, appearance at the conference. And you see this in all of the panels, uh, you know, we, that Meg and Rob mentioned you had, whereas you maybe would have one food panel a few years ago, not on the main stage, you had several now and one or two on the main stage. And I think it just goes to show the linkages with defense and security, whether it's Food insecurity, of course, that's a driver of conflict. It's a driver of my migration, whether it's climate change, again, driver of conflict, driver of migration. And I thought it was really interesting, the bit that Rob wrote about uh, debt relief and Mia Motley, the prime minister of Barbados, who said, you know, if countries are frightened of migration, they need to address debt relief because obviously countries that are servicing their debt and, and paying all their money toward that, that siphons off funds for health, for education, for security, uh, and kind of all the reasons that people would leave a country to begin with. So I just thought that whether it was Sudan or panels on debt relief and, and all of the other things that we covered, it really showed that these linkages with development at the conference, um, not just are more pronounced this year, but I'm sure will be more pronounced in the coming years as well. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned migration, because at least to me, that's really the underlying issue, you know, this is a conference held in Europe. And obviously, the politics of Europe have been shifting more and more rightward. There's European parliamentary elections this year, which look like the right wing parties will do better. And migration has really been the driver. And, you know, when you think about a lot of the development issues we report on all the time, they are potentially big drivers of migration. I mean, Mia Motley said it speaking about the Caribbean, where she says, where do you expect them to move? Uh, they're going to be coming to the U.S. essentially. And if you think about the southern border of the U.S. and, and likewise the Mediterranean, the dangerous crossing uh, there and so many people already trying to trying to move, it, there's sort of this underlying theme that that conflict is being driven by climate and food insecurity and that conflict itself is driving more migration and that you can't get out of this cycle if you are a European power and you're really worried about your border and your political stability. You can't get out of the cycle unless you broaden the definition of security to include a lot of the traditional development issues that the development community has long focused on. So in, in many ways, there's a real logic to it, but I feel like migration is that connection point. I, I don't know, Rob, how, how do you feel about the, the reason why this conference has moved so much toward the issues that we focus on? Oh, I'm sure that's absolutely right that... Uh... Uh, more people in the in the in Europe and and uh, in America are, are paying attention to these issues because uh, what they see or many people see is the threat of migration it is pushing it up the political agenda. I'm sure it's absolutely correct. And so just thinking about Mia Motley, I, she obviously was relishing the opportunity to uh, deliver this message uh, on a, on a platform where 
so many important people were hopefully listening, but you could also see, well, she laid there really her frustration that perhaps she's been saying similar sorts of things about the need for reform, about the need for uh, the world's financial systems to, to be ordered differently and, and that she's been saying it for a long time and nothing is really changing. Yeah, her big push is to get the world to see these really existential questions as you know civilizational challenges and that as a result there should just be much more willingness to take on long-term debt and and i think she you know we mentioned it in the in the newsletter anna but she says essentially you know why do we have sort of a two-tiered system where if you're a european country you can take on a lot more debt if you're the us or you're japan you can take on a lot more debt but if you're you know a low-income country you're expected to have a much smaller debt to gdp ratio when these are countries that if they don't invest now and if they can't borrow for the long run to do that, they can't build the kind of resilience that will allow them to go on existing in a changed world. So especially island nations like Barbados, where she comes from. And so they see it as existential. And yet you're looking at the world sort of saying, well, no, we still have to be using the same financial system and the same financial rules we've used for a long time. And there's limits on how much debt you can take. And she's kind of calling for a real rethink of that and not maybe making as much progress on that issue as she'd like to. Yeah, and I think, you know, you see this, we've had a lot of stories in terms of risk perception uh, in many low to, to lower uh upper or to middle and even middle income countries, um, that the risk perception is is heightened and artificially heightened, if you will. And I think this gets to, um, not to plug one of our other stories, but we have an explainer on the World Bank. And certainly Mia Motley and has been pushing the World Bank and IMF um, on, you know, have, having more concessional lending, um, more insurance clauses and and uh, debt relief clauses that would pause for climate change disasters and and so forth. And so I think that this gets to a lot of the things that we wrote about in our explainer this week by so uh, by Sophie Edwards that I would urge people to to get to because this is really the crux of Mia Motley's argument. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it is a great explainer if you want to know like what is all the buzz about the World Bank like in plain English. What do we actually expect? this organization to do differently. I think it's laid out really well in this piece. And we're now kind of in the hard part of the of the evolution, right? Like in, in some ways, getting political support for reform at the World Bank, changing its leadership, that was tough. But now they're in this phase of actually changing the way the bank operates. And that is particularly hard. And as the piece talks about, you know, running up against some real world, real world challenges. Um, and, you know, I think Ajay Banga is, I just talked to a leader this week who spent some time with Ajay and says he's just so refreshing as the head of an agency like the World Bank because, you know, he just sees through all the BS. He wants to, he wants to get things done. He's all about delivering. And, uh, and he kind of knows that you can get stuck in, in the way things have always worked and the tradition and the bureaucracy. And he's really trying to shake that off, but it won't be easy to actually shake that off in the piece highlights, you know, a point that he made in a recent event where he talks about, you know, why do we have the same kind of risk-based framework for a two and a half billion dollar hydroelectric project versus a three million dollar school project that we need to look at these things differently. And this is what he's kind of up against. But there's a reason why we have those same risk-based frameworks and a reason they've been established in kind of a political economy around them. And it's not so easy to change. So 
Uh, the piece really lays all of this out, but I think it's the same kind of theme that Mia Motley is talking about here, which is you're getting into the hard part of the reform. It was easy to get consensus that these things need to happen. Now actually delivering them is, is quite a bit harder. Hi, I'm Kate Warren, Executive Editor at DevEx. If you are listening to this podcast, you're likely working to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals. But are you subscribed to DevEx Newswire? Global development can be a fast-moving, complex sector. Our team of global reporters work every day to bring you the news you need to make sense of it all. In DevEx Newswire, we keep you up to date on issues ranging from climate change financing to gender equality and global health to transforming the food system, all in a fun-to-read, free newsletter delivered directly to you five days a week. Join the hundreds of thousands of global development professionals who receive DevEx Newswire and visit devex.com slash newsletters to sign up to this free newsletter today. Maybe, Anna, you could tell us a little bit more about another piece that we published this week. We kind of got into it a little bit around the challenges of aid delivery in Gaza, uh, but in particular, uh, UNRWA has has just taken center stage. There's been so much coverage of this, and a lot of it by our own colleague, Colin Lynch, and he had an important exclusive this week um, on that topic. He did, yeah. Um, uh, UNRWA, the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees. So uh, as many of you may know, Israel accused uh, a dozen of its employees of being complicit in the October 7th massacre that killed 1,200 people. Now Israel and the U.S. are pressuring other UN relief agencies, namely WFP and UNICEF, to essentially pick up the slack and do some of UNRWA's work, uh, all of UNRWA's work in, in Gaza to sideline the organization. And now you've got some pushback by UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez, who has urged these agencies, these other relief agencies, to rebuff the appeals, to not accept donations, not poach UNRWA employees, etc. This obviously puts him at odds with the Biden administration, um, Colum has uh, talked to quite a few insiders who, who say that Biden, State Department, USAID are questioning whether Congress will, will ever fund UNRWA again. So you kind of need a plan B. Gutierrez is saying there is no plan B. Um, no entity can do what UNRWA has been doing there in Gaza uh, for decades now, health, uh, education, and so forth. And many people agree with Gutierrez, including some in the Israeli security establishment, because, you know, if UNRWA were to be disbanded, uh, legally, Israel could be left holding the bag for caring for some 2.2 million Gazans. So this is a real tricky thing. It's put agencies like WFP in a bind. And again, you know, this is a longstanding debate. It didn't happen in a vacuum. Israel has long wanted to disband uh, UNRWA. But again, it's kind of you know, and you look at, at the current situation and a day after scenario, there's not an easy replacement for it. So it's a real dilemma for everyone all around. I was fascinated by one detail in that story, which is about the salaries paid to UNRWA workers, right? The UNRWA employs 13,000 Gazans, I guess 3,000 of them are currently delivering aid because they also, you know, employ lots of teachers and other kinds of roles in, in Gaza. And you know, it was fascinating to read that Guterres told reporters at a press event on February 8th that the costs associated with under employees are 
about one third of the salaries that are paid by UNICEF or the World Food Program or other UN organizations. Apparently, this is for historical reasons, but it does outline or underline that if there were to be a change, you know, those people who are calling for UNRWA to be disbanded or for UNRWA's roles to be subsumed by other UN agencies, that is a pretty vital issue that would have to be addressed because this is ultimately dollars and cents. And if they would have to see a massive increase, you know, a tripling or something of the total cost of staff, it's likely just unrealistic. And I thought that was a really fascinating detail. In addition to the question that's raised throughout the piece by some critics of the idea of getting rid of UNRWA, that, well, there just isn't a realistic way to make the transition from the needs that are current and immediate and extreme and UNRWA already being there to these other agencies. Essentially, the other agencies would just have to hire UNRWA employees. And so what would you really be changing? And I think it's a really interesting debate. Precisely. And I think to, you know, again, this, to, to reiterate, it didn't happen in a vacuum. You know, Israel has long said that UNRWA kind of perpetuates this belief or, or illusion, they say, that hundreds of thousands of Palestinian refugees will some, someday be able to return to their um, ancestral homeland. Uh, and as the head of UNRWA, it's uh, Philippe Lazzarini, I believe, uh, said, even if UNRWA is dismantled tomorrow, the question of, you know, the right of return of refugees will remain unresolved until there's a comprehensive peace deal that, that can be achieved. But, of course, that's been elusive for, for decades, let alone right now. And a lot of this debate that we're having is theoretical because it comes back to the fact that humanitarian aid has not been really allowed in. You've got a trickle of it. WFP just suspended all of their aid uh, going into northern Gaza. And so um, really, it's, it's I don't want to say the debate is moot, but as Colin pointed out in his article, it's very theoretical. We've got this more immediate issue of just trying to get the aid in in the first place. Yeah. And like so many other issues, um, a lot will hinge on what happens in the U.S. presidential election, because, you know, if the U.S. politics just keep shifting more and more against UNRWA. And especially if you end up with the Trump administration, it seems almost impossible that you would see funding going from the U.S. to UNRWA. And the needs in Gaza are going to be so extraordinary that you'll have to find ways to bring in U.S. funding to support that reconstruction and that relief effort when the war, you know, hopefully is over. So you know, it's a really fascinating question as to how do you how do you square that circle? And it might be that other agencies of the U.N., do have to step up and take on larger roles in a in a new phase, even while UNRWA still is around and gets funded by other donors. But it's hard to imagine the U.S. continuing continuing to fund it under a Trump administration. Go ahead, Rob. I just thought I'd mention the uh, European angle here on uh, on UNRWA, which I think is quite striking and a little different. Uh, the United Kingdom, like the U.S., has uh, as uh, frozen payments to UNRWA, uh, has, as has the European Union, but not all of its members. And uh, when UNRWA came to uh, Brussels uh, last week to basically plead for tens of millions of, of dollars to be uh, released immediately or else its work would have to stop, it was uh, it was really clear just that the splits between the countries such as Germany, which is also uh, frozen payments and the likes of Spain, Portugal, Ireland and others who who uh, not only um, are trying to continue funding, UNRWA, but have actually increased their funding 
uh, almost in defiance of what Israel has said, and also the anger of Joseph Burrell, who's the EU's foreign policy chief, about uh, Israel's uh, failure, as he sees it, to produce any evidence whatsoever against the staff uh, which it has accused. Yeah, it is interesting to note that the U.S. freezing of funding is, at least at this point, almost something symbolic only, because they say they've suspended, as Colin mentions in his piece, only about $300,000. Uh, they had already allocated 121 million this fiscal year so this becomes a bigger issue as you get into the next fiscal year and to see how long does this freeze hold and there will be a big question mark around that and the politics right now don't look good for restarting funding to UNRWA. so something may have to give there but but you're right that the u.s has frozen it although the, the amount you know at, at stake today is relatively minor and are there any other stories from this week that you want uh, our listeners to know about? There is. There's another exclusive we had by um, our reporter Jenny Lee Ravello, and it deals with uh, UNFPA, the UN Population Fund, which is undergoing a major organizational shift uh, by relocating a quarter of its New York City staff to Nairobi, Kenya. By 2025, it's a very controversial move. Um, on the one hand, you know, when it comes to localization, you're you're walking the talk by being more by being more physically closer to the people you serve. And Nairobi is really becoming a, a global south hub, if you will, of, of UN agencies and other organizations. And it kind of fulfills this goal of UNFPA to be a truly field based organization. But obviously, it's a huge move for some people. Um, some staff are that Jenny spoke to are quite unhappy. Um, you know, UNFPA is the UN agency designed to promote sexual and reproductive health rights. And some worry about moving to a country that has regressed on LGBTQ and women's rights. Others worry about losing access to the UN headquarters in New York, where a lot of the policy is formulated. And there's a good chunk of the policy staff that would be relocated. So it's um, it's very much a debate between management and some staff who say they haven't been consulted. But you're looking at a major shift. I mean, a quarter of the staff in the head New York City headquarters going to Nairobi over just a span of a year. Uh, this is sure to be a big ongoing story. Yeah, it sure, certainly is. And, you know, the or the agency is saying it's not a downsizing, but it sounds like they're also saying, well, not everybody's going to keep a job uh, because they, you know, I guess 80% of the staff that are affected by this have been job matched and have been told, you know, your job is going to stay in New York or it's going to be moved to Nairobi. But the remaining, so I guess that's 20%, they haven't been job matched and they're told they can participate in an, an internal job fair, um, which I guess just happened a couple of days ago but that there are no guarantees. So I think this is gonna be an evolving story to see, is this really just about a move closer to the field, you know, to be restructured because the agency is really trying to do a better job at, at executing on its mission, or is there also a funding issue here? And, um, you know, it's a challenging funding environment. A lot of people that I talk to are saying, hey, this year is gonna be particularly challenging. There's kind of a tug of war given all the agencies looking to get replenished or get funded during a year of many elections and a rightward leaning um, momentum in many donor countries. And so, you know, maybe, maybe their part of this is related to that. That's something we'll have to see, but the agency says it's not technically a downsizing. It's time to wrap up, but there are, as always, more stories that we can talk about. 
in, in this week in global development. But it's been great to be with you, Rob Merrick and Anna Goel. Thanks so much for taking the time. And thanks to everyone who's listening in. And if you want to hear about those other stories, if you want to make sure you miss nothing, of course, subscribe to the DevX Newswire, which is our daily newswire that is read by everybody who works in the global development and humanitarian and global health space and beyond. Um, and you get a sense for, for everything and make sure you're missing nothing. So thanks a lot for listening in. Once again, it's been This Week in Global Development. This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.